You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. It has gone down in history as a case of moral failure on a massive scale. The genocide nearly a quarter century ago in the African state of Rwanda, where up to a million people were slaughtered while the outside world watched what was going on and did almost nothing to stop it. And yet, out of that catastrophe came new impetus for a concept called humanitarian intervention. The idea, the principle that when a state is unable or failing to protect its own people from genocide and crimes against humanity, then other states have a moral responsibility to go in to protect the vulnerable, and to use military force if necessary. And a quarter century on, how has that principle worked out in practice? In places where it's been tried, say, Kosovo or Libya, does the record show that on balance such interventions are successful? Or on balance, do unintended consequences take over and undermine the goal? And right now, with what's going on in Syria, what's unfolding there... Does the past argue for humanitarian intervention there or the opposite? Well, we think this has the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, humanitarian intervention does more harm than good. I'm John Donvan of Intelligence Squared US. It is a pleasure to be at the Brussels Forum in partnership with the German Marshall Fund. We have four superbly qualified debaters who will argue for and against the resolution. As always... Our debate goes in three rounds, and then this audience votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. We have a team that will be arguing in support of the motion. Please welcome Frank Ledwich. Uh, Frank, you are a senior fellow at the Royal Air Force College. You worked in military intelligence. You also write a lot. Uh, you had a great uncle who happened to have the same name as you, Frank Ledwidge. He was a military man. He was also a renowned writer. He was a, a poet of World War I who died fighting in that war. So obviously you did not have the chance to know him. But do you feel a connection to that, Frank? Yeah, absolutely, John. But what has to be said is that what we suffered over the last 15 years was nothing to what they did in the uh, First World War. Okay, getting a, a sense of your theme right away. I'd like to now introduce your partner again, Rajan Menon. Ladies and gentlemen, Rajan Menon. Rajan, welcome to Intelligence Squared. You're a professor at City College. You're also a senior research scholar at Columbia University. I happen to know that for you to be here in Brussels today, you needed to get a colleague to cover one of your classes. So obviously that worked out, but what price did you have to pay? Well, I will not divulge his name, but the secret is a good bottle of single malt scotch. Works every time. <laughs> so, so it worked out for everybody. It did. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing for the motion. Now, let's meet the team arguing against the motion, which again is humanitarian intervention does more harm than good. Please first welcome Bernard Kushner. <laughs> Bernard, you are former foreign minister of France, renowned as the co-founder of Doctors Without Borders. Little known fact to many, I think, that as a youth, uh, you went to Cuba and you went fishing with Fidel Castro, uh, with the important question being, was the fishing good? 
It was not the purpose of my travel. We understand. Sorry to say. But it worked out. Ladies and gentlemen, Bernard Kushner. And Corey Shackey, welcome to Intelligence Squared, also debating against the motion. It's great to have you back. You've debated with us before. You're Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Uh, You are a regular on a podcast I love called Deep State Radio, (laughs) where you are often awarded the tiara of optimism. That's right. I earn it. What is the the tiara of optimism? Uh, It is a confidence that problems can be solved, that people make choices and choices make history instead of uh, a deterministic conclusion of that question. So you are almost wearing the tiara right now. I always wear it. Okay. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing against the motion. So... Let's move on to round one. Round one are opening statements by each debater in turn. Our first debater who will argue in support of the resolution, humanitarian intervention does more harm than good, Rajan Menon. He is professor at the City College of New York and senior research scholar at Columbia University. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, Rajan Menon. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Before you get boisterous, because John told you to be, I should tell you that... Frank and I will sound a little bit like Grinch at a Christmas dinner. And the reason for that is, who wants to hear, after all, that humanitarian war does more harm than good? It is an idea that should unify the world. Alas, it has divided it and divided it deeply on fundamental issues. Who has the right to intervene? Under what circumstances? With what objective? To stop atrocities and end there, or to then overthrow the regime, as happened in Libya, or to stop atrocities and midwife the birth of a new state, as happened in Kosovo. These issues have not been resolved. Now, critics of humanitarian intervention worry about something else, and that is, will this ostensibly universal principle be applied universally in practice or bent and twisted by the powerful and applied selectively? They have good reason to be worried. If you are a great power, the United States, China, Russia, you do not have to fear intervention directed against you no matter what you do. Consider Russia and Chechnya in 94. If you are a middle power, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Egypt, you don't have to worry about intervention either because you've got the military muscle to make an intervention costly. So who does that leave? A miserable gaggle of friendless, isolated states. They, ladies and gentlemen, will be on the receiving end of this universal principle. I'll give you some examples. Saudi Arabia today is waging a ruinous and vicious war in Yemen. Hundreds of people have died by the Saudis. They have put down a blockade that has contributed to a cholera epidemic that has afflicted one million people. Have you heard anyone calling for penalties against Saudi Arabia? No, they're arming the Saudis. Let's look at another example, Myanmar. The government of Myanmar has killed 7,000 Rohingya and chased 600 others out of their homes. Do you think the government of Myanmar is worried about the hoofbeats of humanitarian intervention? The generals lie in bed worrying? Not at all, because they have China in their corner. 
Now, I wanted to speak about another problem that humanitarian intervention faces, and that is the law not just of unintended consequences, but uncontrollable consequences. Libya, post-intervention, is a violent, anarchic mess. Two governments, Al-Qaeda and ISIS, with chapters newly created in Libya, tens of thousands of refugees have fled across the Mediterranean, pumping up the power of right-wing populist parties in Europe. Look at what is happening in Europe today. Now, I want to finish with Bosnia and Kosovo that I haven't talked about. They teach us one lesson. If you want even a modicum of stability post-intervention, you have to keep tens of thousands of troops on the ground, spend billions of dollars to do it right. I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that in the body politic of the West, and certainly in the United States, there isn't the political support to do it. Now, are the paragons of humanitarian intervention worried about this? Not at all. They have overweening confidence in their idea. That overweening confidence, ladies and gentlemen, slides sometimes into hubris, and that is yet another reason why this project, this noble project, does more harm than good. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rajan Menon. And that again is the resolution, humanitarian intervention does more harm than good. And here to make his opening statement against the resolution, Bernard Kushner, co-founder of Doctors Without Borders and former French foreign minister. Humanitarian intervention does more harm than good. Not at all. You were talking and this is a big mistake, about military intervention, not humanitarian. It doesn't mean anything in humanitarian intervention. Let me give you some examples. The first one, yes, sir, you were talking about Rwanda. April 94. Sorry to say I was there during all the genocide with my people, doctors and medical staff. And we did a lot compared to the genocide compared to, let's say, 8,000 of dead people, massacre, it was nothing. But believe me, humanitarian intervention is not a problem of numbers of dead or victims. If you can save one, and if it is your daughter or your sister or your father, this is a very important one. Humanitarian means human being. So, It's not a question of military intervention. You were right in some of your examples. But we were before, and in Kosovo, we were before the humanitarian people. Working with the people, not with the government. There was no government. It was the Serbian government. Afghanistan. But we were, since 20 years, working with the people. And there is still an hospital in Kabul, bombed every day with explosion every day in Kabul. But the French hospital is still working without the government's help at all. So humanitarian intervention is not a military intervention. Neutrality is the rule. When we were working in Lebanon, we were working on Christian side, then on Muslim side, when Shiite side, Sunnite side, etc. There is no choice for a medical doctor or humanitarian doctor. In humanitarian intervention, you have to understand that somebody was calling, some victims, a group of victims or a nation. We are not just 
let's say, choosing our victims and choosing our nation. Not at all. Rohingya is a good example. We were there. Humanitarian intervention has to be before, close to the victims, after a victim's call. But not because the government or the military people are asking us. Never. This is a neutral intervention. And this is, according to my opinion, the proudness of human beings and the proudness of the international community. If we are stepping back, and if I understand your slogan, uh, <laughs> we have to stop the humanitarian intervention and development intervention and everything and wait for the... So we have to let them die. I don't accept that. Thank you, Bernard Kushner. When we come back, what does it take to do humanitarian intervention right? What happens if the political will just isn't there? Another set of opening statements and the start of round two when Intelligence Squared U.S. continues. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So... At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable. It's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. Welcome back. We are halfway through round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where the motion is humanitarian intervention does more harm than good. Before the break, Bernard Kushner, co-founder of Doctors Without Borders, speaking against the motion, was arguing that even one life saved has meaning. We come back to the other side now and debating for the motion in his opening statement, humanitarian intervention does more harm than good. Please welcome Frank Ledwidge, senior fellow at the Royal Air Force College and former military intelligence officer. Ladies and gentlemen, Frank Ledwidge. Ladies and gentlemen, it's simply not good enough to reframe this debate as humanitarian intervention. For those of us who've been involved in these failed efforts over the last 20 years, the predominant effort has been brutally military and bloody. Ladies and gentlemen, let me take you down to, uh, to Basra, to Iraq, in 2004. Command group meeting. Middle of the night, the general showed up. It was a pep talk. Things weren't going so well. And the general said, we are the biggest and best gang in the province, and don't you forget it. And ladies and gentlemen, that was true. There were 7,500 of us, heavily armed, well-trained, well-equipped, and with a reasonably clear idea of our vision and our mission, which was to secure one and a half million people. We failed to do that. We ended up hunkered down in a military base, defeated after some months. Cut now to Bosnia, the poster child for real humanitarian intervention. 60,000 of us there were, four armoured divisions. We had complete military dominance across the spectrum. But ladies and gentlemen, that was in a country of four million people. 
What I would like to hear from our opponents tonight is where we are going to get 60,000 troops to secure a relative, even a relatively small country, not so far away, let alone one of the invadables that Rajan was talking about, which are likely to be much further away. And the kind of war we're involved in, let's be brutally frank about that. Non-international armed conflicts, internal strife, call it what you will, they're civil wars. And they are the most brutal, complex and difficult operations that can be conceived. Ladies and gentlemen, you have no business being in such an environment unless you're absolutely sure that you can secure yourselves and the people you are there to protect. And nowadays, the will, the means, the material are no longer present within our uh, polities, within our governments. We simply do not have the resources any longer to be able to sustain this kind of deeply difficult operation. Because let's be frank, who's going to be doing these interventions? Is Britain going to do it? Britain ran out of bombs after a couple of weeks in Libya. Is France going to do it? No. In all of the missions that we have sustained over the last 15 or 20 years, the United States have borne between 60 and 90% of the effort. Do you detect in the United States any political will for long, bloody, indeterminate, poorly planned operations at the ends of the earth, even if you assume there is some objective to them? Just before I came here, I spoke to a friend of mine, one of my young officers in Iraq, badly injured. I said I was coming to talk on humanitarian intervention. He said, well, there's a contradiction in terms for you. It's war. And he's quite right. No matter how you dress it up, when you conduct this kind of intervention, you are fighting a war. And there's one thing the last 20 years have taught us, is that you don't control war, it controls you. Thank you, Frank Ledwidge. And our final speaker in round one, she will be arguing against the motion in humanitarian intervention does more harm than good, Corey Shockey, Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Ladies and gentlemen, Corey Shockey. So Bernard's and my opponents in this argument make a number of good points, but they conflate warfare and humanitarian intervention in a way that I think confuses the subject some. Iraq and Afghanistan aren't humanitarian interventions. They're wars. We fought them for... We fought them for a reason, and that reason wasn't protecting the people of Iraq or Afghanistan. The reason was protecting the people of the United States and Britain, and whatever you think about those wars uh, doesn't make them humanitarian interventions. Humanitarian interventions are not always conducted by the military, although very often they need a military component in order to make them successful. And the reason that is, is because humanitarian crises aren't natural disasters. They're not earthquakes. They're not acts of God. They're acts of political violence by a government or another political actor. When that happens, um, that means a society is broken in some important way. So the undertaking is intrinsically extraordinarily difficult. Uh, But that doesn't mean they never work. 
There are practical, hard-edged policy reasons to engage in humanitarian interventions. One is that humanitarian crises are often the prelude of worse humanitarian crises. And there the example is Syria, where if we external actors had taken action in 2012 or 2013, you may have seen a bad outcome, but it is unlikely to be worse than half a million dead Syrians. The tottering of the surrounding governments of Jordan, Iraq, Turkey and the fracturing of political dialogue in those countries as a result of the pressure that the violent collapse of Syria uh, brought about. So, So humanitarian interventions are seeking to address a political crisis that has resulted in violence in societies. It's difficult to get it right. We very often get it wrong. But sometimes we get it right. Um, I would argue that Kosovo is a success story. Did it require military force? Yes, it did. But did it also prevent Slobodan Milosevic and, and Serbs from doing a terrible, brutal injustice? Yes, that's a great outcome. We ought to celebrate that. Um, and I think it is a mistake to believe you can that we can exist in innocence and purity in our own societies, in our values. And this I learned from Randy Shuneman and the McCain campaign in 2008. You strengthen our values at their ragged edges. People don't make brave choices when they are in danger. You need to stand next to them and help them make good choices. Corey, I have to interrupt you because yep. your time is up, but what a nice finish that was. Sorry, so Ladies okay. and gentlemen, that ends round one. And now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters take questions from me and from you, our live audience here in Brussels. They can also put questions to and and interrupt one another. In the opening round, we heard from the team arguing for the motion, Frank Ledwidge and Rajan Menon. Uh, We heard an argument that um, uh, against humanitarian intervention on the grounds that they have been divisive, that they are applied selectively around the world, that they have uncontrollable consequences, and that the price to do it right is actually too high. And they say that this has been demonstrated again and again. The team arguing against the motion, Corey Shockey and Bernard Kushner, Uh, They make the point that the right metric for humanitarian intervention is one life at a time. Uh, That uh, there is, however, a strategic component, that there are strategic reasons for participating in humanitarian invention, and that there are consequences for inaction as well. You touched on this briefly in your opening, Corey. Would it have made a difference eight years ago? And would it be worth going in even now into Syria with the kind of intervention that you're talking about and supporting? Yes and yes. It would have made a difference then because it would have helped adjudicate the divisive, difficult political debate internal to Syria. It would have restrained the ability of the Syrian government to use brutality as a weapon of political control. The fact that we have done it poorly in some instances doesn't mean we haven't also done it well. Sierra Leone is a great example where 
the British government engineered an intervention. Let, let, me, let me stop you there because I would like to get you to, to those examples from the past. I just want to stay on the Syria question for a moment and take it to your opponent, Rajan Menon. Well, I sense headwinds from the audience, but I think it would have been complete madness to intervene in Syria. I hold no brief for the blood-drenched Assad regime, but here's what happened. A peaceful demonstration was set upon by a savage government. Very quickly, the opposition was radicalized, and within a matter of months, the groups with purchase on the ground were either Islamists or people who wanted to create a Salafi state in Syria. Arar al-Sham, Jaysh al-Islam, Jabhat al-Nusra. Now, if you send weapons into a society where alliances are shifting, corruption is existing, do you have any guarantee that the weapons are going to go to the good guys? And who were the good guys as time rolled along? Look, let's not have a, a competition for compassion and tragedy here. That's not what this is about. Whether Frank and I care about dying people, of course we do. The question is, how do you make a very difficult decision that balances okay. eth- ethics and strategy? Let's let Bernard Kushner respond to that. This is, my dear, not a humanitarian intervention. We were in Syria. My people, the Médecins Sans Frontières and Médecins du Monde, they were already there. And we took care of the wounded people because you are starting the story with the massacre of the army, Bashar al-Assad army, uh, fighting on the, on the crowd. But formerly we were there. And we are still there, but this is so difficult and risky. Don't mix... Another time. Well, I'm not let, let me step in, Bernard. Let me step in because you asked me to listen to what you said, and I did. And I think you're a little off point for the thing that's at stake here, which is the question of putting military force into the game. But we in are or, not in, in order charge. To, in order Don't to believe carry. that you many people, sir. Please, we are not responsible of the direction of the army. Yeah, I don't want you to pivot away what we're, from what we're debating here. What we're debating May I here take a swing at is, it? is whether it's, it, it's justified for a nation to put military force... But I'm not a nation. And, we are humanitarian tra- people. We are not a nation. But we're asking what nations should be doing. That's no, the question. But this here. is not absolutely not the problem. Okay, I, I don't want to be debating with you about, about what the debate is about. Involvement. Can, may I take a swing at this? Yes, Please but go ahead. me too. Um, me too. Okay. So um, it seems to me that... You are suggesting that any use of military force has to be an enormous use of military force or that anything else would have failed. Windows of opportunity open and close with time. Good question. And if, for example, in the specific case of Syria, if, for example, we had taken away the government's ability to use air power, that would have leveled the playing field and possibly prevented the radicalization of rebels that you subsequently saw. Okay, Corey, Frank, I'd, Corey, like you to, Corey, I'd like you to actually answer Corey's point on point. I'm very keen to get stuck in here, because I can't let this pass. First of all, when you just take out a nation's air power, you don't do that. You make war on the state, and the Syrian air defense system is probably the strongest outside the Western world other than Russia. That would have been an extremely difficult undertaking, an act of war. And you might agree with me when uh, I were to say, if I were to say that perhaps Russia might have had something to say about that, given that they essentially run Syria's air defence system and much of its defences. No, the woulda, coulda, shoulda argument doesn't work. Because what, in my view, would have happened is we wouldn't have had 
green, white and red flags in Damascus. We'd have had black flags in Damascus had we intervened with well, the 82nd Airborne Brigade. But you're, you're, you're both talking about unknown outcomes. I mean, uh, I, you're talking about what would have happened exactly. if not. And you're, but you're doing the reverse. Job. You're doing the reverse I, as well, I don't though. believe it woulda, coulda, shoulda. So can okay. I Bernard, why don't you come back ex- into Yes, please. But who is able to give the clearance to the humanitarian involvement? To whom do we have to address our question? Are we supposed to follow a government? We are not following a government. We are just answering to the victim's call. Look, I have great admiration for Mr. Kushner. He is a towering figure on the world stage and a true humanitarian. But let me ask you this. If there is so much compassion in the West for suffering people, why haven't we done something that's much easier than taking out the Syrian air defense system Why is the World Food Program and the UNHCR going around with a begging bowl because rich countries have not provided what they promised? But go there. Now, one other thing. Go there. One other thing. I I had a very clever debating teacher. She was brilliant. And she told me, if you can't win the argument, reframe the debate. Mr. Kushner is talking about aid, relief, mediation, all this. No one disagrees with that. It's the sharp end of the stick that has made this debate so controversial. And on the point that Iraq was not a humanitarian intervention, when they didn't find WMD, what did some of the humanitarian interventions, not Mr. Kushner, Tony Blair and others say? Well, we got rid of the dictator. You got rid of the dictator and turned the, the Middle East upside down. That's what you did. So we're finding an interesting distinction that there are military interventions with a humanitarian component and that there are humanitarian interventions with a military component. And I think that's a little bit where the dividing line is. But I want to move to another topic that your opponents brought up. Again, I'll bring this to you, Corey. How could a president who wants to persuade the American people to be behind a humanitarian intervention using military force in somebody else's country, using their treasure and their blood? So my favorite reflection on the war weariness of the American public actually comes from the satirical newspaper, The Onion, which argues that the nation's college professors are weary of the burden they're carrying of our wars, right? Because the nation's college professors aren't carrying the burdens of our wars. And in fact, the American public hasn't objected to the pre- this president of the United States with his America First doctrine from increasing troops fighting in Afghanistan, from increasing troops fighting in Iraq, from increasing troops fighting in Syria. Uh, Those are not all humanitarian interventions, but if the American public were so weary of the burden of war, the president would be paying some political price for that. And in fact, what you see is the reverse, Mm. right? Your average American gets drawn out into the world by the expressions of our values. Let's take that point to your your opponents. Uh, 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 Frank, first. Whether whether President Trump never sends another soldier abroad, the United States are in hot for $5.6 trillion for what's gone on over the last 16 years. That's the cost, never mind the 6,000 dead soldiers, 60,000 injured soldiers, and all the other political costs. You're in hot for that already. And I would suggest to you that there's very little appetite for another dollar being spent on that kind of intervention. I spend a fair amount of time with military people. You know how I started doing it? I worked for two years on the New York City suicide hotline and talked to our troops who come back. All we do is tie yellow ribbons around trees and wave the flags. They come back maimed with PTSD. And I have talked to them exactly about this. So please don't tell me that I'm sitting in an ivory tower. 
And I can tell you when you leave this echo chamber called Washington, D.C., and go to Missouri or Oregon or Texas, there is no stomach for this. And ladies and gentlemen, don't take my word for it, Pew has done very good polling on this. When you tell people that the cost rises in blood and treasure, support falls off. So, Bernard, on that point, you're, you're one of your successors uh, on evidence, potential evidence that chlorine gas was used in Syria, is talking about if, evidence, if solid evidence comes of the Syrian regime now using chemical weapons, he would support intervention. Do you think the French public would be behind that? To answer precisely to your question, yes. But it's too late. Unfortunately, we are witness inerts and not protesting at all to the fall and the death of La Guta close to Damascus. Mm-hmm. Are we supposed to send people? Yes, we tried, but it's impossible to pass. But you were asking about Kurds. We didn't ask the President Hollande or the President Macron or the former President Sarkozy to help the Kurdish people. We did. We are not asking any power, any elected power. We are just doing it. Coming up, audience questions. Questions about Syria, about drone strikes, and the role of the United Nations. That's when our Intelligence Squared U.S. debate continues. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. Right now, we are in the middle of the question and answer section of this debate, where two teams are fighting it out over this motion, humanitarian intervention does more harm than good. This debate was held live in Brussels, and since the format we were using was a little different than usual, I was actually strolling throughout the hall helping audience members ask questions of our debaters. As you'll hear, sometimes they wanted to hold the mic. And welcome to Intelligence Squared and German Marshall Fund debate. I'm going to hold it. I'm going to hold it. Okay, we'll hold it. Hi, Dania Khatib. I think I'm the only one from Syria. I'm half Syrian, I'm half Lebanese. And I've worked very closely with refugees. And for the two gentlemen who advocate that not to interference, what do you suggest how to end this? Let Assad kill another million, a half a million? And I'll tell you something from working very closely with refugees. The reason we have ISIS is because the America didn't intervene. This okay, I'm, I'm going I'm to step in to, to actually take, to take your comment to, to the point of what we're debating. And what I want to do with your question, if, it's, if you're fine with that, is, is take it to the ISIS question, unintended consequences. They're saying the unintended consequences go in the other direction, that ISIS is there because Syria fell apart, because there was not earlier intervention. Uh, ISIS Frankly, is there because the Iraqi government, which is, was at the time pretty much extra-legal, supported and sustained Shia militias who were murdering Sunnis at this, much the same rate that ISIS murdered Shias. And I don't think there's too much controversy about that, and that's an offshoot of the Iraq war, that's the source of ISIS. It has nothing to do with whether or not we did or did not intervene back in 2013. Okay. Let's let Kari Shaki, would you like to respond as well? You don't have to, but I want to give you the crack at it. Uh, it certainly is true that both the decision to invade Iraq and then the decision to leave Iraq in 2011 facilitated the rise of ISIS. There's no question about that. But it's also a lesson about what solves these problems, right? Because when the United States and other countries 
cared about good governance, helped establish an environment where uh, Iraqis felt secure, they were beginning to make brave political choices. But you can also see how it fails with too little local knowledge, with too much hubris, with too little caring about solving the underlying political problems is how these fail. I have another question. Yes. Yeah, I got it. Uh, my name is Natalia Kalad. I'm uh, coming from Belarus in dealing with Pifuminat. Uh The question is, last week I met with uh, Sean Westmoreland. Uh, he is former U.S. Uh, Air Force veteran and uh, pilot of drones. And he truly believed in uh, humanitarian intervention. But uh, it's appeared that, uh, according to the report by his bosses, that he killed 200-plus enemies. And then UN reported to him that he killed 359 civilians. So uh, his belief in humanitarian intervention disappeared. How would you comment? I'm not in charge of the drone system. I'm sorry. And, uh, but what about, okay, what about if, if you ask us if, if we are the humanitarian people, let's say, roughly, in favor of peace, yes, we are. That wasn't what the question not was. To sit. That, that wasn't the question. The question no, was but the question the... was... The murder by drones attacks. Is it, is it worth 300 but, people I'm, I'm killed sorry, versus 200 lives? I'm in charge sometimes because they call us. Okay, so let me, take it, let me take it to Corey then. Because no, but the sorry, you cannot change my mind. I think that's a terrible and a tragic example <laughs> of where things can go wrong. It seems to me that um, humanitarian intervention merits is doing is necessary. That's not an argument for doing it badly. On the business of people are learning, making proper choices, democracy, corruption, we have heard this for 15 years. There are serious problems in my country with infrastructure, poverty, income inequality. The out-year costs of these two campaigns, that are unwinnable, by the way, is $5 trillion, all right? And we want to have more of this? Let's take down to the side. Sir? Hi, Bart Sheftrick of the European Commission's European Political Strategy Center. A quick question for Frank and Rajan. What do you make of the relatively successful 2014 uh, humanitarian intervention to protect the uh, CDs in Syria? You didn't mention this instance, but it was a relatively limited instance of the use of force that saved about 50,000 people. And for your side to win, you would have to argue that that intervention, which didn't have any sort of secondary or tertiary um, consequences, was actually a mistake. And for Corey, okay, if I may... Thanks. But it's a great question. More evidence from the other side. Frank, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to address that directly. It's not our case that humanitarian, military, military humanitarian intervention is always going to cause more harm than good. It can cause good. So this was a very narrow, very limited intervention. And as a, as a result... Successful. The same applies, too, to some degree, by the way, to the Sierra Leone intervention in 99. Extremely limited, extremely to the point, and very, very short. But I, I hear Corey and Bernard arguing that if it meets the conditions you just set, then their side wins. No. Well, I, I, Corey, you are I, basically saying that, that, right? So and, I'm wondering... And, you can name, and Corey can name one intervention in the last 20 years 
which was, by the way, an off-the-books action. That's the only example you can point to. So I think, the, I think the intervention in East Timor, led by Australia, yes, and in counts as a success. I think Kosovo counts as success. I think the 1991 protection of what we now come to think about as the Kurdish territories of northern Iraq, which was not a narrow or a limited intervention, was an enormous success. Another question? Um, I'll hold the microphone. I'll hold the microphone. I'll hold the microphone. Okay, thank you very much. I'm from Morocco. Uh, I want to ask the panelists, don't you think that today, of course, we have a humanitarian crisis, we have refugees. Do you think we should review the two UN and Britain Woods agreements? And, and I want to add to that question, is there a way to improve the processes, a set of guidelines to do this right that would, you know, 30 years from now change your mind about how things went? Well, we might consider some political solutions, as, as you suggested. I was talking to a NATO official a couple of uh, months ago concerning Syria, and I asked, instead of sending our troops to somewhere like Syria, we might consider, oh, I don't know, targeting some uh, oligarchs in, in London, making sure that they have, for example, immigration problems. And this senior NATO official said, yeah, you know what? I, p- I put that to, to, to my, uh, my chiefs, and uh, it was rejected. This is not the kind of solution that it was felt to be appropriate. Instead, we devolve immediately to military solutions. Bernard. I already told you that we are mixing up everything, but I'm going to answer about migrants. In... They are dying in the Mediterranean Sea by thousands. Two French boats or three French boats are in charge of rescuing them. Themselves, we didn't ask the government. One is Médecins Sans Frontières, the other is Médecins du Monde. This is a humanitarian intervention and not a military intervention. And we have a lot like that. Starvation, disease, Ebola. Who is the first at the first rank to intervene. Humanitarian people. This is not always a question of war and peace. This is a question of human being and answering to suffering. That's all. Rajan. East Timor and Kosovo. The intervention in East Timor was possible because the TNI, the Indonesian military, agreed to stand down and not resist. Had they not, it would not have happened. In Kosovo, NATO pilots were restricted to flying no lower than 20,000 feet, even though the Serbs scaled up the killing. This goes to my point that the capacity to really suffer and die on behalf of these missions, ladies and gentlemen, is limited. That is a political question, not just a military question. Rajan, thank you very much. That concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is humanitarian intervention does more harm than good. Now we move on to our third and final round. In our third and final round, the debaters make closing statements, again, uh, one at a time. Leading off with his closing statement, Rajan Menon. He is professor at the City College of New York and senior research scholar at Columbia University. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, if you were to visit my study at home, you would see bookshelves groaning with books on humanitarian intervention. I started out on this side of the debate partly from reading about the incredible work that people like Mr. Kushner do. I had enormous sympathy for the intervention in Bosnia. I do not want people to die. That's not what this is about. It was a long and difficult and painful road to me for, for me to come to where I am coming. We have to, in this tragic world, filter moral issues through difficult circumstances. 
we may have people who are being put under enormous distress and would like to do something. But a president has to, or a prime minister, this goes to you, ma'am, has to put an enormous amount of attention on the political realities and the military risk. You've been in a very energetic crowd, and I sense where the momentum of the crowd is. But please don't misunderstand us. We don't take any joy in arguing the position. It is not the idea that humanitarian intervention is always bad, as witnessed the gentleman's question on the Yazidis. I think that was a good move. I supported it. The proposition is not whether it is always bad. That's not what we're arguing here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rajan. Again, the resolution, humanitarian intervention does more harm than good. And here to make his closing statement against the motion, Bernard Kushner, co-founder of Doctors Without Borders and former French foreign minister. Let me say that your sentence is not good. You have to write, humanitarian bar and military intervention does more harm than good. It will be better and it will be more close to, let's say, the question you're asking. Because you were never talking about humanitarians, that is to say volunteers, not guided by government. Second, of course, you quoted some of the the point where it was necessary to intervene, but it was impossible to intervene everywhere. Because a state and an army, especially an American army, or the, the British army or the French army are not bad. But humanitarian people are completely a little group, few people, under their own decision, under their own charter. So do you want to suppress that? Certainly not. Do you want to suppress the way we were talking about uh, Ebola epidemic? No, certainly not. So this is always the case. We are, let's say, answering the maximum or the minimum what we were able to answer to human suffering. It was a progress compared to the Second World War. We did something. Do you want to suppress that? I don't think so. Thank you, Bernard Kushner. Once again, the resolution, humanitarian intervention does more harm than good. And here to make his closing statement, Frank Ledwidge, senior fellow at the Royal Air Force College and former military officer. Ladies and gentlemen, in such dangerous things as war, the errors which proceed from a spirit of benevolence are the worst. Now, Clausewitz, the famous Prussian general and theorist, said that just, uh, just under 200 years ago, and it holds as much water today as it did then. The disasters and catastrophes, the wreckage of which we're dealing with now over, over the last 15 years, should give anyone pause before any kind of military intervention is considered. But there are times, aren't there? And it's not our case on this side of the house that... Humanitarian intervention can never work, only that, generally speaking, it does more harm than good. And one major example of that was revealed by Bernard himself, and that's Libya. Bernard doesn't need reminding, nor do you, as to why it is that all those thousands of refugees and migrants are dying in the Mediterranean. That's because of the appalling mess we made of Libya. I include myself in that. There are times, ladies and gentlemen, when we're tempted to do great and good things. Let me give you an analogy. We can see on the top of a mountain that there are people in desperate need of help. We know something must be done. 
But we also know that if we go on that mountain to rescue them, we don't have the kit, we don't have the oxygen, we don't have the resources to help them. We should do something, but we can't. Ladies and gentlemen, I was in Beirut a couple of years ago and I met a young lady uh, very similar to the young Syrian woman who spoke before. And I was there rather pompously to find out what Britain could do to uh, ameliorate the situation there. I'll never, never forget her response when she found out that I'd already been involved in several of these failed interventions. She said, haven't you done enough? Thanks very much, ladies and gentlemen. Support the motion. Thank you, Frank Ludwig. And our final speaker in closing rounds, Corey Shaki. She is Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, making her closing statement against the motion. Corey Shaki. So our opponents in this discussion are big-hearted and well-meaning and made a lot of good points. Humanitarian interventions do often fail. Too often governments engage in the desire to do something without thinking their way through what ought to be done, how to limit it in a way consistent with their limited interests in a particular problem, or with the limited opportunities that a particular problem uh, offers us. Uh, But to suggest that humanitarian intervention does more harm than good overlooks the numerous cases where it has done more good than harm. The Yazidi example, uh, intervention in the Balkans, both in Bosnia and in Kosovo, uh, interventions in East Timor, Sierra Leone, the French intervention now uh, in Mali is definitely doing more good than harm. You're exactly right. Doing it well requires knowing a lot coming in with a sense of humility and not trying to overwhelm local actors, but to set them up for success. And I still think the best commentary on this ever was from Edmund Burke, who said, the use of force alone is but temporary. It may subdue for a moment, but it does not remove the necessity of subduing again. And a society, a country, is never to be governed that must perpetually be conquered. In order to do humanitarian intervention well, you have to solve the underlying political problem. You have to create the basis for a different kind of sustained political agreement going forward. Thank you, Corey Shockey. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time for you to tell us which side you feel has argued the best. Remember, we had you vote twice, and it's the difference between the first and the second vote that determines our winner. In the first vote, on the resolution, humanitarian intervention does more harm than good. Before the debate and polling you here in Brussels, 30% of you agreed with this motion, 51% were against the motion, and 19% were undecided. In the second vote, the team arguing for the motion, their first vote was 30%, their second vote was 34%. They gained four percentage points. That is the number to beat. The team against the motion... They went from 51%. Their second vote was 59%. They pulled up eight percentage points. That means the team arguing against the motion, humanitarian intervention does more harm than good, is declared our winner. Congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. and the German Marshall Fund. We'll see you next time. 
This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the German Marshall Fund's annual Brussels Forum. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Clea Chang is chief operating officer. Leah Mathau is vice president of programming. Shay O'Mara is manager of editorial operations. Taylor Quimby, Aaron Dalton, and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. You can now stream all of our debates on demand on Apple TV and Roku devices with the IQ2 US app. One last thing now, and we are asking for your help. When you give Intelligence Squared US debates five stars on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, you help other people find us. So if you enjoy our debates, please rate and review us today. I'm sure we can all agree America needs reasoned, balanced discussion now more than ever. If you live in the New York City area, join us live on Tuesday, March 27th, as we debate religion and spirituality with Deepak Chopra and Michael Shermer. There are still a few tickets left, and you can buy them online at iq2us.org or by clicking the link in the show notes. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from David A. Coulter, Robert Epstein, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Kelly Posner Gustenhaber, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, Jennifer and Philippe Salendi, the Paul E. Singer Foundation, Edward Stern and Stephanie Ryan, and Emily and Antoine Van Actmel. From Intelligence Squared U.S. and from me, John Donvan, thanks to all of you.